And I get halfway through and two paragraphs out, I knew I was going to drop it at the point that I always dropped it. And it was like being on stage in front of 6,000 people watching a car crash internally. You're listening to Amplifying Research. I'm your host, Chris Parlow. And after 15 years working as a professional screenwriter, director, storyteller, I'm now on a mission to help make sure that incredible research generates real-world impact with the help of effective engagement and communication. So this podcast series brings together some of the best research communicators in the world, professional science communicators, researchers who have world-class experience with engagement on television, on the radio. And I'm also gonna bring in some left of field people, comedians who specialize in science comedy, storytellers who are fascinated by research, lots and lots of amazing people who can make sure that your research communications and engagement are gonna help you achieve your goals. Now, today's special guest is Associate Professor Susie Shee. Susie is not only a very accomplished accelerator physicist, but she's also an absolutely incredible science communicator. You might be familiar with her TED Talk, The Case for Curiosity-Driven Research, which as of this recording date has almost 2 million views. She's partnered with the Royal Institution to deliver lectures which have hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube. And she's also the published author of the amazing book, The Matter of Everything, 12 Experiments That Changed Our World. Susie was incredibly generous and open with the tips and experiences that she shared. We got to do a real deep dive and cover topics I think you're going to find really fascinating and useful. Everything from how you can spread the word about your work and your field by partnering with organizations that can amplify your voice, to a real nitty-gritty breakdown of what it's actually like to deliver a big presentation like a TED Talk, including how do you deal with nerves, how do you embrace your own personal style. And we also got to cover how Susie's been able to embrace different storytelling techniques and adapt them depending on what format and medium she's communicating in. It's a really wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful for all Susie's gems, and I think you will be too. Stay tuned, listeners, and I hope you enjoy. Alrighty. Associate Professor Susie Shee, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Okay. So there's so many things we can talk about today. I think let's talk about the reach you've managed to achieve and I guess the platform you've built in the first instance. You've got hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube. You've got a TED talk that's, you know, 2 million views almost. You've been on on television. Now, if I'm a researcher or a comms advisor listening to this that may seem like an impossible goal to achieve. Can you walk us through the process of getting from being a a physicist early in your career to where you are now? Yeah, so, um, yeah, it it is a bit overwhelming, isn't it, when people see that and they're like, oh, how do I I step straight into that? And Mm. I think the main thing for people to understand is it's always a journey and it's always a a sort of a growth and a trust process. Mm. By trust, I mean you have to demonstrate that you're a proven quantity, as it were, to various forms of, say, media or various organisations that are going to put you in front of large audiences and use their publicity sort of um, wagon, as it were, to, you know, to put your stuff out in the world. So I should say I've been communicating physics since I was an undergraduate in physics. Wow. Um, So I was lucky enough here in Australia, where at Melbourne, where I'm now a associate professor, but I did my undergrad here back in the day. And I had a lecturer who was doing just science shows for kids, you know, like for high school kids uh, and primary school kids even. And I ended up sort of on stage alongside him uh, with no preparation. And it was uh, a baptism of fire. Oh, wow. Um, But that was, it was good. It showed me that 
this was part of the role of an academic to start with. Mm. Um, and that challenge of, you know, you're on stage, there's a, a demo and you have to explain it to primary school kids. Um, it highlighted that this is a skill set and that I needed to, to learn it. And so from there, I sort of got into this mode of intentionally growing my skill set in this direction because I wanted to feel good about the way that I was communicating and I wanted to know that I was having an impact. So I ended up, I worked at ScienceWorks for a little bit, the Science mm -hmm. Museum. So that helped give me a little bit of professional training and presenting. And then I actually went to the UK for my PhD um, and then I stayed there for 15 years. So one of the things for Australian researchers listening to this is, is um, a lot of my trajectory was helped by the fact that I was in an environment where I feel support for um, public engagement and science communication in the UK is a bit more developed mm. than over here. So during my uh, PhD, I actually won some funding from one of the research councils to write and start a science show for high school students um, about the area that I was researching in particle accelerators. And because of my background, I had this sort of fairly unique position that I could, you know, that I had the confidence to just write, like sort of show with liquid nitrogen and wow. exploding things. And I trained up 20 other graduates as presenters and we went all over, you know, we toured it around the country. I don't know how I did this alongside my PhD, trust me. I was so energetic back then. <laughs> um, and, and it was just, it was heaps of fun and I learned a heap from it. And that was where we started getting more approaches for media. So we did, you know, some little radio pieces in BBC Radio Oxford. So I guess that's kind of the point at which a lot of people start their engagement journey is either during PhD or after. And maybe there's a program like that they can get involved with. And what became immediately obvious to me is that you start this thing thinking you're doing one thing. You, you know, we thought we're doing an engagement program for high school kids. Um, and we did, and it was you know, very successful. And I think we reached about 20,000 students during wow. my time. And it's actually still going 15 years later, um, which Amazing. is pretty impressive. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, but then I realized the power of working with organizations which can have um, an amplifying effect. Mm. Right? So I was a student at the University of Oxford. They had a great comms and engagement team. They had professionals helping us with that. And then I realized, you know, when someone found a connection through BBC Radio, you know, that sort of started happening. And I realized that through growing the network, while also demonstrating that, you know, here we have this skill set that um, is proven, um, that opportunities just started coming. So one of my co-presenters ended up uh, going on TV. Uh, his name is Andrew Steele. So he ended up doing some demos on TV with a childhood hero of his, um, which was lovely. And then he also ended up presenting for Discovery Channel later on in our careers. Um, and he's now more or less a full-time science communicator, wrote books as well. You know, like he, he, he and I have had a similar trajectory. And I think the thing there is that it, it sort of all snowballed from like sort of start something, do it well and network well. And you will just find the opportunities come your way. That's more or less been my experience. So from, from there, um, I'm not going to say it's a linear path, uh, because there were a few sort of key opportunities that came my way. But I think I realized those key points of working with organizations that can amplify. So I've never run my own YouTube channel, for example, uh, partly because I didn't want to moderate it. Um, but also because there's a whole other skill set I would need to do all the video production and writing and a whole lot of work. But instead, uh, you know, I ended up working with the Royal Institution in London, 
who are a fantastic organization. They have all of those skills in-house. And so we developed projects together. Again, we, we received more funding from research councils to do that. Um, and that emerged into sort of a video project and you know these videos on YouTube that have hundreds of thousands of views. And what I didn't realize again from that was um, my book agent actually saw one of those and that's how he picked me up. Um, and also during that, they had a publicity team and I ended up on um, uh, BBC Radio 4 doing um, Start the Week, which is one of like a very uh, high audience radio show uh, alongside Marcus de Soto, who's a mathematician, and Roger Penrose, the uh, famous <laughs> sort of mathematician physicist. And that that was amazing. I had amazing feedback uh, from doing that media experience. Right. And so it, it just it just grew and grew over time, I think. And then and then I think two years after that was when I was invited uh, to Sydney to do the TEDx Sydney talk. And then that um, got picked up by the main TED organization and then their, their publicity vehicle went. So people get this impression that, you know, you start your own YouTube channel mm. and if it's good enough, somehow it will manage to go viral and magically opportunities will land in your lap. And it's you do have to be a bit more strategic than that. Yeah, um, yeah. So my, my main recommendation is work with professionals. Be the talent, mm. not the producer, because as a researcher, you have the expertise. Um, and as you grow your confidence with working with different forms of communication and different types of media, you'll see the benefit from knowing that there's a team behind each piece that you do who are going to increase the reach mm. of that. Um, so, yeah, so my trajectory very much started out, as most researchers would, you know, on stage doing demos, you know, like direct engagement with people. And then over the course of, what, 10, 15 years, I guess, um, it's it's really exploded into yeah a much larger reach. I don't even know how to quantify that reach anymore. I don't. I, I would need a team to quantify <laughs> the reach. So. Well, I know you've just covered fifteen years of growth and exploration in in only a a very short amount of time. But there's so many gems in what you've just said. I love your uh, endorsement of finding the right team. Mm. Of I guess finding partners who can amplify your voice. And I think that's such an important step in quite a few ways, even just simply taking some of the cognitive load. If you're trying to go out on your own and figure out like the actual communication in terms of scripting a talk, how to be a good presenter, and then you have to think about the algorithm and the, you know, the post-production and, and on and on and on, that's really a lot to ask. Um, and, and, and you know, for people who are professional researchers, they didn't necessarily get into the game to learn 15 new areas, right? Exactly. And um, and it is always a pressure on researchers if you're doing this alongside your research. And I certainly found this, um, that you want a lot of impact for the time that you're putting in because you still have your day job. Your day job yes. is to do research, right? And the, the research is the platform on which you stand up and talk about. If you're similar to me in the, in the sense that you're a researcher and communicator, um, the people who, who become professional communicators, who I massively respect, um, perhaps they have more time and incentive to develop mm, yes. those other professional skills. But I think unless you're really into it and it's fun for you and you're doing it in your spare time anyway, um, it's just such a high load. Yeah, as you say, it's a big cognitive load as well to think about it and take on the pressure of, well, I know I'm doing good content, but now I've got the pressure of trying to 
uh, get the impact to happen directly as well. So I've definitely always relied on professionals for that, especially I was lucky to work with them fairly early in my career and sort of see, oh, that's a whole other mm. skill set from the one that I have. Okay, well, partnership is where that's going to happen. Yeah. I, I think the amplification you mentioned also can't be overstated. Like, it's so cool to hear you, you did this talk and then you got a book deal out of it. And if you had gone out and started that YouTube channel on your own, mm. you may have been communicating just as effectively, but is it going to reach as many people? And right. I see a lot of research centers struggling with, okay, how do we you know, build awareness of the great work we're doing? And one of the first questions I tend to ask them is like, okay, who are you trying to talk to and where are they already going? Yes. Maybe there are already channels. <laughs> you, you can go be a guest on a podcast. You can give a guest lecture, whatever's most appropriate. You don't have to reinvent the wheel each time. I totally agree. And a lot of those audiences who are interested in areas of research may, you know, think outside the box with that because yeah. they may be attending venues that um, don't currently host sort of science content or, or content in your area of specialism, but that may not be because they don't want it or they're not craving it or there's not an audience for it, but because they don't know you, right? Mm. So putting those pieces together is important. Um, I'm very lucky that in, in Australia, I have a, a sister who sort of works in in or has worked in that large event space and speaking, so she she knows all the uh, all of those sort of key partnerships, which we haven't lent in too much. But if I was in the position of a researcher who needed to build their engagement, I'd be looking at where the interesting talks are happening in the yeah. city, or where the interesting YouTube channels are, and you know beyond traditional me media as well. You know, there's places like the Wheeler Center, um, mm, that does yes. fantastic, you know, ideas based talks, and your research is fascinating to people. It's just getting it in the right format, connecting the idea with the audience. And often researchers think they have to do the whole shebang. And if you go to where the audience already is, that's half the work done for you. Beautiful. I'm also really glad you mentioned your sister because even if you two haven't formally collaborated, I can imagine having someone in the family who can speak the same language and, and you can kind of I guess, share an understanding of, of what you're trying to do must be really helpful. And if I think about your story, from very early on in your academic career, you have examples of people who are going out and doing this work. And I can only imagine having supportive colleagues, supportive peers played a really big role in, in your confidence building of this time. Yeah, that's a really good point. Environment is everything, isn't mm. it? Um, and people can get very discouraged, especially in early career, when they receive this feedback. And I, I won't lie, I've, re I've received, you know, unsolicited feedback that I oh. should, early in my career, that I should sort of stop doing so much of this communication stuff and focus on publishing more papers. Mm. Um, it does take a strength of commitment to what you're doing to push back on that if you're in an environment where that's the message that you're constantly receiving. Um Luckily for me, most of my career, I've been in environments where I think at a minimum, it's seen, been seen as neutral or not quite understood. Mm. Um, but in, in at many points, it's been really actively encouraged. You know, my PhD supervisor in particular, you know, during that phase where I was running this whole program, a lot of PhD students would have been told, you're doing what? No, you're not. Um, focus on finishing your thesis. And my advisor instead, you know, we'd have meetings and he'd share a recent interview video with me that he'd done uh, and get my feedback on it. 
you know, because he realised that I came in with this skill set <laughs> that he that he didn't have. And so he was just um, behind the scenes. It wasn't even necessarily to my face, but behind the scenes, he cleared the path for me to succeed. Wow. Um, I really respect that. So, so I eventually, I think after my sort of second postdoc, when I was applying for jobs, I sent in with my CV, with my application package, an unsolicited uh, statement on public engagement with research. Mm-hmm. Um, where I outlined my approach to it and my philosophy and the fact that for me this is, um, I view this as a professional skill, you know, I make sure that everything is properly evaluated, you know, that here's the amount of uh, money I've brought in for these activities externally to the university um, and here's some of the sort of highlights and, you know, my expectation is that I will continue doing this. And I did that because I didn't want to bend myself into a role where, you know, on the surface, they're like, oh, yeah, that's fine. And then I would get in the job and they'd be like, no, 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 you're not doing that. I knew that to keep me happy in my research, because I I love the way that communicating what I do and interacting with people outside the field just gives me such a fresh perspective on what I'm doing. And sometimes it's what that is what keeps me coming into the lab every day. Um, And I know that about myself and about my personality. So it's just, it's part and parcel of what I do. It's very embedded in my research and my way of thinking. And so if someone took that away from me, I, I knew that it would be a matter of a couple of years before I left the field. Wow. Um, so I got to the point where I was like, I'm just going to tell them that this is me. And if you're hiring me, you get this. Hopefully they'll see the benefit. If they don't see the benefit, I'm not working for them. Um, to the to the risk of, of leaving the field, right? To the wow. risk of, of going, well, I guess my backup plan is I do that full time instead of research. Um, and that actually turned out to be an amazing thing to do. Mm. And I've had nothing but positive responses from that. Yeah, even in interviews at the end when they asked me, you know, do you have any questions for us? And I said, well, I'd submitted this statement. We haven't discussed it. But my expectation is I'll be spending 10 to 20% of my time doing these sorts of activities. What's your take on that? And the response, I still remember it, was we wouldn't want to cramp your style. Go for it. Um, amazing. I was in. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then and nowadays it's a big part of my sort of leadership and service work in my full academic role. You know, I was promoted earlier this year and uh, a large part of that was for, yeah, the sort of international mm. public intellectual work that I do. Wonderful. I know most of this conversation is going to be about public engagement mm. and communicating with a broad audience, but I think that example is such a beautiful little case study of very effective communication on a one-to-one level. You know, you were able to clearly articulate, look, this is who I am and Mm. this is what I'm about. And if you don't like it, no problem. I can go work somewhere else. Yeah, that's true. That's a communication technique in itself, It it definitely is. To just be really sort of direct, uh, as it were, or or at least honest Mm. about this. You know, I'm not going to try and hide the fact that I'm sneaking half a day to a day a week to do this. Like, yeah. let's all be on the same page here. This is what I'm going to do. And, uh, you know, if you're if you're really not okay with that, um, we're not a good fit. 100%. I've talked to other guests about how research can often be an individual pursuit and sometimes mm-hmm. a research organisation can feel more like a collection of, of solo researchers kind of just hanging out in the same office or the same lab. And the struggle of unifying people, uh, you know, around a common agenda. And I think if you as an individual researcher can articulate what's important to you, what's your passion, 
that's going to make it easier to find the right teammates to go on this journey together, right? Yeah, that's true. It's interesting because, yeah, there's this perception that science is very individual. And I've had points in my career where I felt somewhat isolated. Mm. Um, And uh, again, that doesn't work great for me either. I enjoy team dynamics. And so (laughs) I think being able to articulate how you fit in a team and what unique skills you bring to a team is an important part of it. And not every scientist is the same, right? I'm, you know, they say there's a whole list of different types of scientists, right? Um, but one of those is sort of the communicator scientist. Yeah. And clearly I take that role, right? Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, and I think when you're in a good uh, culture, then that is valued as, mm. a, as a skill set above and beyond the research. And I will say that not everybody understands that yet, but... I think that diversity of approach to science and diversity of, you know, what you value and where you bring value to a team. Um, well, I mean, we have so many different types of diversity and people are starting to see and it's starting to come towards a point of recognising that diversity in every aspect builds a better team. Mm. Uh, and so this is, to me, just one aspect is sort of diversity of where your skill set lies. And in my experience, it takes a while for colleagues, for example, to see the value of what you do. And often they're a bit shy or vulnerable if they're not good at the communication Mm. thing. There can be envy or jealousy, which is like there's all these emotions that we don't talk about at work, right? And especially when one person is seen to be sort of in the public eye, there can be envy. I I will be be honest about it. It Presents in weird ways sometimes, um, snide comments, yeah. uh, you know, like people overanalyzing a publication record in a way that they wouldn't do for mm. somebody else just to check it. Are they legit or do they just communicate? You know, it's it can be a bit of a minefield. But I have also found that senior leaders now are much, much more likely to see the value and to shut down, you know, that kind of, um, I don't know, that kind of strange behavior where someone is applying an incorrect single model of how to be a researcher Mm. and, you know, almost seeing communication especially and public intellectual activities as um, a downside, as like detracting from your main job um, when it's an addition, right? Yes, yes. (laughs) Uh, And often it's a very, very important addition. and, and, And for me, it's become quite a sort of holistic embedded practice whereby my communication has now created or helped me create and become part of collaborations that I wouldn't otherwise have become part of. It's helped me expand the problems that I can work on as a researcher. So let me give you the key example I'm thinking of there. Um, So I have worked since my PhD and on and off in the realm of particle accelerators for cancer treatment. And most of what I've worked on is big machines, like next generation ones for proton therapy, which are huge facilities. Australia's just getting its first one now. Hundreds of millions of dollars, um, you know, not very equitable access because Mm. of that. But most cancer treatment, like 50% of all cancer cases are treated with an accelerator anyway with radiotherapy, little medial-long electron accelerators. And I'd been in the field 15 years and it never worked on that type of machine because it's just commercial. You know, mm. you, buy, you, you buy them, you put them in hospitals, they're maintained there. And I had never thought about the fact that um, 
low and middle income countries did not have equitable access to what I considered to be a standard technology. Yeah. And so in about 2016, I went along to a conference at CERN where there was representatives of about 20 different sub-Saharan African nations. Um, and for the first time, actually realized this like huge global challenge in delivering cancer care with very high-tech technology, which is designed for high-income country environments, designed for our health systems, designed for the fact that we can get parts through customs quickly. And so there's a huge shortfall of these machines and the ones that are there break more often. Um, and I found myself in this position where we had accelerator experts from the UK and CERN, we had medical experts from Africa, and we had a few medical experts from the UK there as well. And it was like there was no common communication language. And this mm. is a common thing early in an interdisciplinary thing. And I, I immediately found myself within this two-day conference becoming the translator between the two fields because I had enough medical application background to understand. But what I found was mostly that the physicists that I was one of would just talk over the heads of everyone else. You know, they'd be like, oh, but should we use this frequency or this frequency? And everyone else is sitting there going, we don't understand why they, why they and they were getting head up about it, right? Like they were shouting at each other. Oh my goodness. Physicists and behavior, <laughs> don't even start me. Um, but, <laughs> um, but, you know, so, so I just found myself on occasion putting my hand up and just sort of saying, just for, for the non-accelerator people, um, the frequency defines the overall mm. size of the device and will define the weight of the device. And so they're trying to decide whether it would be acceptable in a clinic to have a machine which is physically larger than what you have now. What do you think? Mm. And it allowed the two sides to actually communicate. Nice. <laughs> um, and so I think it wasn't really till that point in my career that I realized how being able to communicate without jargon, the key points like mm. that off the cuff um, had become just part of who I am as a researcher. And that... Um, yeah, that collaboration is now a, an international collaboration that's trying to address this shortfall of uh, radiotherapy systems and, and sort of make them more robust. And a paper that came out of that for me, which was assessing assessing actually what was going wrong with these machines, is what now one of my highest cited papers. And it was it was one of those things where I wasn't using all my skill set of physics, mm. but I found I found the problem that needed to be solved through good communication. Okay, so I'm imagining a researcher who's listening to this now. They may be feeling the pressure of their schedule. I know every academic always has more things to do than they have time in the day. I think your story clearly demonstrates many benefits that can come with investing time in getting better at communications, whether it's for your own career progression or that beautiful example you gave, an amazing collaboration uh, that can change people's lives can come out of it. Let's talk about some tangible things they can do to embrace this because some of the listeners are going to be in the UK, but not all of them. They may be in Australia or other countries where there's not as much encouragement. Would you suggest they try and find like-minded other researchers so they can have that support network that you were able to have in your career? I think that's a, yeah, that's a really good starting point is to ensure that you sort of have your tribe as it yes. were. Um, so that the way you're thinking and the things that you're heading towards are, are encouraged by the environment that you're in. And yeah, you might have to curate that online even. 
um, or you might have to attend, you know, sort of a science communicators uh, meetup or something like this, um, which would be good. And it's, I, I think one of the things that we forget about both science but also communication is it's a creative process and creative processes require you to develop a practice mm. and and it doesn't you know when when a now I mean now I'm a writer right so I can say this but when it, when an artist sits down to create art sometimes that's just sitting and playing with some materials sometimes it's staring out the window or sometimes it's going to an art gallery and uh, seeing other people's work and embedding yourself within an environment where you're seeing good examples and it's making you think of new ways to do things um, and it's maybe challenging you uh, and then, you know, giving yourself a little sort of sandpit <laughs> to, to play around with ideas. That sort of thing, I guess, would I, w- I would call that sort of almost the practice of developing where you're going with this. Um, we don't often think in that way, in especially in the sciences, you know, it's like we, we think in sometimes a much more linear way, even though we know, for example, that our best ideas come when we're in the shower or on a run. Um, <laughs> and so in practical terms, yeah, finding a community and in most institutions there will be some form of community where where um, people are excited about uh, public engagement, communication, mm. things like that, you know, online uh, podcasts, things like that. This podcast <laughs> is a great place to start. Um, at the University of Melbourne, um, the SciComm team have yep. Let's Talk SciComm. That's, you know, find a few episodes that resonate with you. Um, you know, if you're into writing, read mm. other writing. Um, go to a public talk that's like maybe not in your area, but see see how it's done. Um, so you don't have to start creating mm. straight away, but get the juices flowing um, would be, I guess, a first step. I will say there are fewer institutions here that you can sort of link up with easily than than there are um, in in the UK, especially for well in science for those sort of general science ones where you can connect up with them. But they there are things that do exist, um, and often it just takes a, a pitch really um, mm. to sort of say, "Hey, we have this idea. Let's try and do it." And you know, National Science Week and Open Days and things like that are great testing grounds for um, for engagement opportunities if you're more into something like writing the conversation is a great outlet for that and i wrote for the conversation well 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 before i wrote a book um and it was the first time i ever worked with a professional editor and it was it was a wonderful learning experience so yeah i kind of went straight from that to a book it was a it was a big learning (laughs) journey (laughs) okay listeners you don't Um, need to jump straight from that to a book (laughs) but i mean how we started this conversation you were talking about presenting to to school children so if you're out there thinking about how can you dip your toes in the water, you don't need to start with something super big and scary. It can be something really small and fun. And and, and it should be fun, right? Like when yeah. I watch you lecture, you're laughing, you're smiling, you're clearly having a great time. Yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoy it. Um, and that is that is a thing that's just come with, with practice. Like at first I was absolutely like bricking it. Um, (laughs) so it's important to acknowledge that as well um you know because you see me on stage now and they're like oh she just must be a natural at this no 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 I was never a natural I just practiced okay yeah fake it till you make it pretty much but also I think it's really important to to say that you're it doesn't have to be perfect to have Mm. the impact that um that it needs to have I have a whole dramatic story about my TED talk if you want to hear it please yeah this is this is the (laughs) forum for it Oh, this is like a confessional. Goodness. Um, (laughs) 
So I was used to doing, you know, onstage science talks and demos for like audiences of up to 2,000 people at a time. Um, I, I'd got to a comfort level with that. And then I was doing the TED Talk and compared to a lot of the speakers, I actually had more onstage speaking experience. So they didn't do much with me in terms of, you know, like presenting. Um, you know, we sort of worked on the content, but they were like, you're a presenter, go for it. And it wasn't until the day of the talk um, that I realized the situation I was in, which is I had to rely on my memory um, mm. and I don't usually present that way. I normally uh, have a sort of few key points and I riff around it. But a TED Talk's really tight, so it's scripted. It's scripted and practiced to death and then you come back up out of the valley of death to make it more natural. <laughs> and then there's 6,000 people wow. in the live audience and the knowledge that there may be you know, an online audience afterwards. And you've got one go. That's very unusual for uh, recorded presenting. Yeah, Normally you can have a few takes, right? Um, and it wasn't till the day that I realized that that audience also, they're not kids like I'm used to, they're professionals like me and that's a different expectation. And in rehearsals, a lot of the time when I was going through this script, because it had been edited by me but also by the curators, uh, there was a point halfway through where we'd removed a couple of paragraphs and I kept dropping it and I kept dropping it in practice. And we practice it and practice it and practice it. Um, and they were like, you can have cue cards if you want. And I was like, no, I'm a professional. I'm not having cue cards. I'll, I will remember it. You know, my memory is notoriously rubbish, by the way. Um, so I pulled myself up for this ridiculous situation. And I'm giving the talk. Oh, first of all, I should say, like, just before the talk, I more or less had a panic attack. And my wow. sister, like, my sister took me outside to lie on the grass and, like, do breathing techniques. Wow. Thank God for her. Um, and uh, which I've never had before. I've never had it with presenting before. It came more or less out of the blue. So when you hear my TED talk at the start, I'm quite breathy. Um, it's really interesting. It's, it's, uh, my voice sounds breathier than normal. And a lot of people in the comments are like, oh, her voice is great, very husky. You know? <laughs> um, they think it's sexy, but it's actually because I'm like literally panicking um, inside. Wow. <laughs> and I get halfway through and two paragraphs out, I knew I was going to drop it at the point that I always dropped it. And it was like, being on stage in front of 6,000 people watching a car crash internally. Um, oh, my goodness. And so I did what they advised to do if that happens, which is take a pause, take a breath, and then try and keep going. So I took a pause, took a breath. The audience thought it, I was pausing for dramatic effect, so clapped. That was great. Um, <laughs> and then I kept going, and I made up the second half. I am, I'm actually speechless. That's incredible. And the second half is way better than the first half. Wow. Wow. Now that I've watched it back. Of course, on the day, I thought it was terrible. I thought I'd failed. I came off stage and cried. Oh. Yeah, right. And now of that TEDx session, it was the first one to be picked up by Big Ted, as they call it. Mm. And it's one of the highest watched physics uh, TED Talks. Like, of, of, I mean, of course, they edit out the bit, you know, the long pause. Sure. Um, but it's become one of the highest watched physics TED Talks of, of all time. Yeah. And um, it's... I, it's wild to me. And and I, I tell this story when I teach you know, workshops in science communication as well, because it really brings home the point that um, authenticity is what's important. Mm. Vulnerability is okay. Your audience actually connects with you more if there's a little bit of imperfection. Um, they don't like things that are too slick, right? 100%. It's a little bit icky yeah. when things are too slick. Um and that you can still have the impact that you hope you'll have, even when it's not perfect. And that that was a, yeah, that's a big lesson from that experience. I still get, I still, it feels awful even recalling the situation. 
Yeah. Wow. That's my big Ted story. That's yeah. an incredible story. Thank you very much for your confession. Yeah. I really want to underline some points in your story because you told it so vividly. Obviously, you're an expert <laughs> communicator. And I don't want any listeners out there to start to get a bit of sympathetic panic as well and think about, oh my God, am I going to have a panic attack when I go on stage? I think the key takeaway here is your subjective experience of reality when you're doing public engagement or when you're on the radio or whatever it is, does not reflect how an audience is going to experience that communication. Oh, you put that so well. Yes. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> because, you know, I've, I've been there as well. You know, yeah. I, I've given plenty of talks. I've had that little panic attack. Um, maybe I haven't had to lie down, <laughs> although my sister hasn't been available to help me at the time. Uh, so maybe have I would have. Have a good support network. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think no matter how it feels to you, I think take a lesson from this story mm. that it's not just going to be okay. It can be great. And yeah. sometimes... The things that feel the worst are like, I really mucked that up and I went on a tangent. That can be what people like the most. Yes, exactly. And if I can add another lesson learned from it, it's also to trust your gut and your style. Mm. If, I, if I were to give another TED Talk, um, I don't think I'd have cue cards, but would I push for a teleprompter? Hell yeah. Mm, mm. <laughs> um, would I maybe uh, yeah, use a technique to prompt my memory? Yes. Would I perhaps just deliver it the way I normally speak, which is I have my key points and I talk around them, which is what I ended up doing anyway. Yeah, yeah. And then I wouldn't have been so anxious about it. Um, so it was because I went along with uh, the expectation of the organization and the way that they sort of teach people to give a TED talk, right? Like I read the whole book on giving a TED talk, you know, like I did my work. <laughs> I did my, there was like 17 drafts of the talk. Um, and, uh, that's not how I normally work. And mm. with the experience that I have, I think in retrospect, I should have trusted my gut more on how, yeah. how to go about the process. Yeah. Bringing it back to the example you gave earlier when you were, you know, going on job interviews and being like, here's my manifesto. This is who I am. I think you can do it at the micro level as well. They wanted you on stage, right? Yeah. They don't want someone who's, I don't know, like a robot who's, got all the life sucked out of them. People yeah, and want they don't you. want a physicist trying to be Brene Brown, right? They, yeah, that's they want, right. They want me, actually me. Actually yeah. you. And actually the way, you. the reason Brene Brown works is because of her authenticity. Mm. Yeah. Oh, we could do a whole episode. I know, I know. Brene Brown's coming up on a lot of episodes I'm recording. <laughs> she's, a, she's a fan favorite. All right, wonderful. We could talk about that uh, until the cows come home, but I'd love to give the listeners some nuts and bolts tips thinking about the kind of public engagement they may have to tackle in the coming days. So let's talk about storytelling. You mm -hmm. use a lot of stories very effectively in your communication. Uh, thanks. Um, yes, I started thinking at some point in my communication, I guess I'd been using a sort of classic presenter style, which was very much thinking about, okay, what's the, um, what's the content that I, you know, what's, what's the key messages? Mm -hmm. All these things are good, you know, de-jargonizing, forming key messages. These are all really important things um, to think about when you're communicating and just getting the language right, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, the other key tip that people will always say, you know, is there's three rules, you know, audience, 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 right? So mm. think about your audience, think about where they're at. And as as people who go out and try and share research, often w when we're thinking about where they're at, we're thinking, oh, they have a high school level of understanding. How can I um, change the level to engage these people and meet them where they're at? And that's great. We should be thinking about that. 
But what changed for me and made me into more of a storyteller is I started thinking more about the emotional journey that Mm. my audience was going on and why they should be listening to me and why they should be interested in the content that I'm taking away or that I'm, I'm trying to get them to take away. And that made me realize that we are, like humans are storytellers, right? Yeah. Like in our, I, I don't want to say genes or DNA because I'm not expert enough to claim <laughs> that, but, you know, like w- we all know that if, if we tell something in a story, it will stick better yeah. than, if, than if we don't. And so I started learning more about storytelling um, and here, a couple of um, a couple of podcast uh, episodes and things, uh, things like random business podcasts and you know storytelling and narrative in business settings mm. um, helped shift my mindset on that. And then when I started thinking about writing the book, was when I really got into trying to understand story structure. I joined a writing community. I was in Oxford at the time, but I, oh. I joined a. Um, a write, well, I actually have two writing communities nowadays wow. and most of them are fiction writers. And what was wonderful about that is we'd have these, you know, people read out their stories, little snippets of their stories and receive feedback. And so I got to understand, you know, character development. I got to understand, um, you know, scene and setting and uh, world building. Mm. And I got to understand like the typical story structures. So where there's like an inciting incident and then rising complexity. Yep. And then there's a, you know, some uh, crisis uh, and, and then, um, oh, what are the, where does it go from there? You know, there's a- The hero's journey. The, the hero's journey. That's the classic one. Um, and I started trying to frame some of the things that I was writing in particular into these structures mm. and just realized it was so much more compelling. And of course, being able to safely read it out and get feedback myself was was amazing. Um, and so, yeah, now even my my- book agent is like that's a very unusual skill for a, a working scientist mm. to write in such a narrative storytelling driven way and of course as soon as I started writing in that way I started thinking about speaking in that way um, and I do that even in my research now so I I've done it in keynote presentations when I first had to present to one of my the board of one of my funding bodies I started with a story um, about the values of our group and something that I'd learned and how I'd implemented it and how it had changed the way the group works and, and the result of that is all the research I'm going to tell them today. And they loved it. Um, so, yeah, so I've, I've sort of embraced the power of storytelling. And so it won't take you much time if you're a researcher to just hop online and like yeah. Google some of the classic story structures and think about, okay, what what's the story of my research journey? And this is something I use a lot when I'm now helping my students or staff developing papers or even a thesis is what's the story? And it doesn't have to have a hero's journey story. There are other structures, but also just thinking about like um, what what makes it a compelling story? Where are the tensions? Yeah. What are the main motivations? What am I striving for? Um, where are my challenges? Uh, yeah, it just helps to put things in a format, which is it's just so much more engaging as a as a audience member or as a reader or as a listener i love that you really just dove right in and that's so cool that you i nerded on it yeah (laughs) i totally nerded on it yeah we're like the inversion of each other i've come from a screenwriting background into research communication there you go there you are in a couple of writing uh, communities yeah who who would have thought (laughs) um now some listeners i'm just going to play the devil's advocate for a moment some listeners uh may be unsure about embracing some of these storytelling structures and techniques in every aspect of their communication. Are there times that you do take a more traditional approach? 
Oh, completely. Okay. I mean, if I'm, I don't know, if I'm giving a research update at a meeting, I'm not going to sit there and waste everyone's <laughs> time with, uh, here's a story, everyone. Um, it's also, yeah, the appropriateness of the type of story if you're, if you're going to use it and how much time it takes to, to mm. develop. So, you know, in my day-to-day, you know, when I'm planning out the procurement for my lab and my grants, no, I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm not using stuff like that. Um, in f- research proposals, I do think about it, but it's a very different style okay. um, because there's a, yeah, there's a very specific sort of style of um, yep. grant yep. proposals, isn't there? Um, a style of communication. Uh, it comes, I guess, fairly naturally to me now um, to use at least narrative or storytelling. Um, but uh, I mostly, in my day-to-day work and papers and things like that, I mostly use it as a way to give feedback in editing. Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, all of my students know that I've got a couple of little key key things that I sort of put in the margins, and one is RW, which means rewrite this because somehow it's not it's not coming across clearly. Mm. Um, but another one is is SP, which is signposting, mm. um, which is we need you to add a sentence or so here to tell us where we're going and why we're going there. Um, and that, if I could encourage anyone to start thinking about uh, better communication in writing especially, I'd have a think about um, like looking at pieces of writing and trying to tell the difference between a piece which comes across very clearly because it has good signposting, you know where the piece is going and you know why and then the evidence is there versus if someone just, bleh, you know, like yeah. gives you, here's all the data, you know, measurement of this thing and then, uh, you know, here's the result from this thing. And if there's no interpretation and no direction through that, it's very hard to read. Yeah. And it's what makes a lot of scientific papers very hard to read actually is a lack of yeah. signposting. Um so that one alone, especially if you're a student or a supervisor, understanding the concept of signposting in, in writing is um, uh, a great place to, to start. Mm. <laughs> um, but you don't, yeah, you, don't, you don't have to use it all the time. People are, you know, like if you're a researcher, you're extremely competent at doing what you do already, but perhaps you've never called it that. I think um, it's clear you're really comfortable with this. And I, I think once you have these skills, you can perhaps even intuitively decide to what degree you're going to employ them in a different situation. Yeah. Like even the example you gave earlier, when you had the physicists yelling at each other about frequencies, you were able to underline the why, okay, why is this conversation important? And you were able to signpost and guide people through, okay, we need to make this decision because it's going to have this impact and then we need to make this decision. So even just in a conversation, you are able to employ some of these skills effectively. Mm, yep. It doesn't have to be a Hollywood production every time. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I have not done any Hollywood productions. So. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not yet. Never say never. <laughs> okay, so would you recommend researchers go and join a writing group? That could be confronting, but it could also be amazing. Um, I, I guess it's it, horses for courses. You know, yeah. like I think something that challenges people when they look at what I've done is they're like, oh my goodness, you've done everything. Um, but don't, think that I did all that at once. Sure. Right? I, I didn't. Um, I developed skills sort of almost one at a time. And when I felt like I'd either sort of mastered or um, got to a point where I was like, oh, I'm a bit bored with doing live shows for kids now. I'd like to think about how to talk to adults instead. Um, or, you know, okay, the energy level of having to go out uh, to public audiences all the time and drag a car full of demos and set them all up and 
oh, I'm only reaching 200 people maximum in that format. Maybe I can reach more people another way. Um, that was when I started uh, thinking more about other forms of, of media. Um, and then, you know, putting out some feelers and, and seeing what came my way. So, yeah, you don't have to do it all at once. And it's very, you will know what suits you as a person. It might be surprising to, for people to know that I'm actually an introvert. Interesting. I'm, I'm what people will call an outgoing introvert, which means I come across as very outgoing and then I very much need my recovery time. Mm. Um, so for me, the, the time and energy expenditure of these activities is important and it, does, it can impact on my other work if I'm overloaded with it. And so I have to be a bit strategic about, about what I do, which is why for me, you know, being able to partner with organizations who do all the legwork and reach large audiences works great. Um, now that I'm at, I'm at that point. Um, but each individual will know, you know, like when I was at school, my marks for English were better than my marks for physics. Interesting. But I never thought about, you know, writing a book until it more or less came to me. <laughs> as an idea from my agent who came and literally said, have you thought about writing a book? Like that's actually how he, how he opened it. And I hadn't, I really hadn't because I thought, I only thought I could write a popular science book once I was like a full professor or, you know, mm. I, I wasn't giving myself permission to do that because I thought, oh, there's at least 10 other people in my field who are more qualified in some scientific way, I suppose, to write that, but they're not doing it. So eventually I gave myself permission to be that person. So you'll know like, uh, you know, if you're really into making animations, uh, if you have an interest in sound production, uh, if you like writing, if you like standing on a stage, if you'd prefer to be behind a stage doing the technical work on um, making a bunch of really cool demonstrations so that somebody else can use them. Like, we are not all the same. Yeah. Um, and there's probably a niche where you're going to feel really good about mm. doing that and it will feel enjoyable because for a lot of people, especially presenting, feels overwhelming. Even giving a research presentation in a low-pressure situation is something they have to really work themselves up to. And I, I understand that. I'm, I'm not that person, but I fully understand the emotion that happens around that. And while they're, you know, obviously in their career, that's the thing that they have to do occasionally. And it's exhausting for them. And yeah. I understand that because the preparation, the mental preparation, the emotional preparation and recovery is, is enormous. So you probably don't want to be going out there on stage in front of kids all the time. Mm. it's probably not the right fit for you, but maybe you want to try writing some articles or um, maybe you're the one who wants to write, you know, the script and outline the creative side of how we're going to present this research, but you don't want to be the presenter. Sure, sure. So again, teamwork, teamwork. you know, <laughs> like lots of, lots of options and Love that. you can start small. Yeah. I think that's a key point. Start small and follow the fun. Totally. Follow what feels good. Follow what feels good. Mm. Love that. Now, you've just covered a whole bunch of different mediums and, and formats in, in that last part of the conversation, books, articles, going on the radio, doing live presentations, and you've done a wide range, you've been on television. Can you speak a bit to some of the decisions you make when, I guess, in the first instance, deciding what medium is most appropriate mm -hmm. for the message you want to convey? Yeah. And also, how do you change your messaging? Because, for example, you've got an amazing book. 
you know, the audio book's about 10 and a half hours, but you've also got an amazing lecture which covers some of the same material and it's about one hour. I'd love to hear about the thought process. Yeah, I think um, in a way, in a way, the longer formats are easier than the shorter formats because you get to just fully explore ideas. Mm-hmm. Even then, people would be surprised that you've still got to choose what to leave out. Yeah, and, yeah. And in that sense, uh, for me, in writing the book, it was really finding the overarching narrative and then really trying to stick to that and having a few guiding principles. Um, and there, my editor really helped to sort of define those guiding principles. And one of those was lead with the science. And I still remember when she said, it, I really, I really liked that advice because what that told me was we've got all these characters, but we need to get into their heads and understand what they were actually thinking scientifically at the time. Mm. What did they understand? That was the hardest part of the process was actually getting into the heads of people and trying to forget everything I know about what we know now and where, where we're going and figure out their motivations and then go from there. Um, and then leaving out anything which doesn't need to be there in, in that explanation. So if we, if we know we're going on a certain journey around a particular part of science uh, or a particular scientific topic, or in my case, maybe a particular particle, well, at the time there might have been six, seven different particles and they were all part of a general confusion, but maybe I'm going to focus on one. And so I'm in all likelihood, I'm going to highlight that one and say, and maybe I'll mention, you know, this was part of a wider thing and, and there was a lot more going on. Um, but so-and-so, this character that I'm talking about, they really wanted to understand this one. Um, and, and then we're off, right? Then yeah. we've got our, our driving motivation. Um, so so in, in longer format and, and, and book, it's kind of sort of format, it's um, or 10-hour format, <laughs> as you say, it's um, being able to be clear and direct enough and streamlined enough to actually keep people on the journey mm. because 10 and a half hours is a long time to listen sure. to anything, let alone my voice. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> we all feel that way when we hear yeah, ourselves I know, on the I know, I don't, I never listen back to myself anymore. Um, okay, so let's think about like an hour, an hour long public lecture, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, there's no way, like my book contains 12 experiments. And so if I think about you, when I wrote my book talk, um, there's no way that I can fit 12 key experiments yeah. and their stories into an hour. Not a chance. So then it was more about pulling out key themes um, and, you know, sort of key lessons and then peppering that with a few little interesting stories and demonstrations where they were interesting. So I basically, you know, assume nothing's in there and they go, hey, well, what are the key themes? You know, well, there's collaboration and then there's this thing about um, uh, how curiosity-driven research leads to innovation in a way that's quite non-linear. Which story tells that the best? Oh, mm. I think this one does. Okay, well, we'll tell that little story and we'll do this little demo and then we'll expand upon that. I mean, I've given enough public talks now that I know that I can fit between eight and ten demonstrations in an hour maximum and that if I'm doing that and if there's any audience interaction, I sort of I can gauge fairly easily now how much time things are going to take. But that's a good guideline. If you're a demonstration type presenter or even if you have little videos or little interactive parts, eight to ten moments. Okay, Um, eight to ten moments. Eight to ten moments, but three to four key ideas. Mm. Um, So I'm always thinking in especially live presenting is, you know, what's the flow? Where's the beat? Where's the the high energy part? Where's the low energy part? Where's the nitty gritty detail? Where's the big explosion, you know? <laughs> like, it, it's a journey. It's a journey. Yes. And, and um, if everything is at the same 
tone and pace and things like that, then um, your audience will fall asleep, I guarantee you. Definitely. Um, so, yeah, in terms of structuring and thinking about a piece like that, that's I guess that's a thought process that, that I go through in terms of like key themes, key things I want to communicate, three or four of those, okay, and here's what I'm going to structure around that. And, yeah, your audience in a live situation probably have roughly a 20-minute sort of proper attention span. So you want to be changing things up or interacting or the audience is doing something. Um, and that goes for adults as well as kids. People say for kids, but it, it also applies to adults. We have such short attention spans now. Yeah. So changing things up about um, every 20 minutes, but that's where the sort of three to four mm. key ideas works well with that because you're changing, you're sort of shifting key ideas while trying to make sure there's an overarching mm. journey. Okay, so then let's talk like 10 minutes, right? Sure. Heart, like the TED talk length, I mean, great. Like they get heaps of views. People love to watch it out. It fits our attention span well. It's very well curated. Doing so much stuff in 10 minutes is hard. It's yeah. really hard. My first version was 26 minutes long. And even then I thought it was short, um, <laughs> you know, and I struggled to see what to leave out. Um, and so then you're really down to like one key idea in that sort of length. And so I think that's probably the key thing between different, lengths and formats is really how many key ideas you can explore in that time. And so if you're a researcher and, you know, you work in, I don't know, cancer drugs or something, um, maybe you're working on seven different drugs at the same time in your research lab. You're probably going to have to focus on one yeah. or one type, mm -hmm. maybe. Um, and that's hard. It's hard when you're a researcher and you're so, you know, you're so into the detail, it's hard to drop things that are important to you. So in curating something like a TED Talk, it's like, okay, what's the overarching thing that maybe links some of my different areas of research? Um, you know, the big step back. And even I, you know, even with all my years of experience, I really needed those conversations with the curators to help me take that step back and go, mm. what is the big thing here? And for me, that was um, the connection between curiosity-driven research. Or We started out with the term blue sky research, but then preferred curiosity-driven research as an encompassing term um, and how that connects with sort of societal change and innovation in that space. And when you're doing the shorter format, it's really hard to, to tread the line between big picture motivation, like what I just said, and being a bit trite or a bit um, tacky. Mm. Uh, and I see people struggle with this in short format things. There's competitions like Three Minute Thesis, yeah. for example, or Fame Lab, And you'll know in the opening line if they've nailed that um, big picture because, you know, it, there'll be an opening question, an opening hook. Um, and if it comes across authentically, it's fantastic. And if it comes across as the person teaching me how to do this told me I have to step back and come up with a big picture and so... Uh, I'm going to ask a question that, you know, is really obvious to me and it comes across that way. And uh, I don't know, like, I it, I wish I had a good example of like, let's pull apart these two different talks, but um, I think it'd be harsh to the person who, who I'm pulling apart. <laughs> um, but, but, but yeah, being able to step back and do that in an authentic way. The other part of that for me, which I found really difficult is, I think I mentioned this before, is feeling that I had the permission to talk at that high level mm. as a relatively junior researcher yeah. at, that, at that point in time. Um, and I don't know if everybody has this experience of feeling like, okay, well, I work in this specific 
bit of research, but I can't represent the entire field of physics, genomics, sociology, whatever, psychology, whatever field it is you work on. And it's a tension between our actual expertise that our academic colleagues recognize and who we are in the eyes of our audience. And so you have to think like a TED talk, you're not talking to your colleagues. They're not your audience. Like again, audience, 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 right? They are not your audience. You're an expert. By the time you're doing research, you've got, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten more years of training under your belt. You are a researcher. You are Mm. a scientist. Like, have confidence in that. Don't pretend you have to know everything across the entire field. It's okay to say, that's not my specialism. But here I can hook you up with someone who does know. And and I think it's so important as well to not pretend that we know everything in in science. It to me that's an old style of science communication that I feel is very outdated. Mm. The pretending that a scientist is like a, a know-all being of all the facts. It's just it's just wrong. It's like what unifies us is our approach to yeah. how we find out things about nature. You can represent that in whatever field you're working in. One thing I'd really like to highlight is how present you are in the conversation or the presentation. And I know researchers can sometimes feel like, I've got to take myself out of here. Mm. It should just be about the research. But those audience members, they need you. You're the conduit. And I'm thinking about your book and the introduction is a beautiful story about you and your passion. And if you're passionate and you can communicate that excitement and enthusiasm and a bit about your journey, that's going to help them find an entry point into the research. Yes. So I completely agree with you. And my philosophy around communication and engagement very much um, does centre the the human side of doing science. Absolutely. I do understand that that makes some people feel uncomfortable and that they would prefer to centre the science and take themselves out of it. I have witnessed, you know, very good sort of science communication where it is very much about the detail and about the ideas and not about the person. And that's okay. Um, personally, I, I prefer it when it's more human, but that's, you know, there's, there's different styles mm. um, and my style is, is very much more human. For me, that's also about people taking a bit of a growth mindset around the idea of being a scientist or the idea of, you know, who a scientist is because we have this, you know, lone genius stereotype. And I think... The style of communication where you remove your humanity from the story and you talk just about the, the detail um, and often those, because you're only focusing on the detail and you're not focusing on whether or not you have ever found it challenging to understand that, you're kind of communicating the message that someone should understand it straight up, um, which to me plays a little bit into the lone genius stereotype and a sort of fixed mindset rather than a growth mindset. And so one of the things that I try and do in sort of being much more myself in the way that I communicate is also to be, you know, to be honest where where I've found things challenging, um, where things bring up emotions. I mean, science is supposed to be objective, but scientists aren't objective. We're human. Um, and that is part of the process of doing science is how we, uh, how we work with that and mm. how we reflect on that. Um, and I've found people uh, really love having that conversation, actually. I think there's a fear for some people that it's going to veer into the territory of, well, you know, if I admit vulnerability in the sense of that I struggled to understand something, it's going to reduce my authority 
And if I reduce my authority as a scientist, then anyone can claim to, you know, like misinformation will spread because then maybe the trust will reduce in me because my authority has been reduced because I'm saying that I don't understand everything. Uh, I think the opposite is true. I think being able to uh, show how you have come to understand something, even if you didn't at first understand it, um, is incredibly important. Mm. And it's part of the process of demonstrating why scientific knowledge has a legitimacy that uh, misinformation um, and pseudoscience and things like this don't have and shouldn't have. And so the process of how we go through peer review, how we fail, you know, and how we admit to mistakes, how we seek out mistakes in our own work and others' work all the time. It's such an important part of our training um, and how we cope with that emotionally because it's really hard yeah. to, t- to, you know, to put your soul into something and realise you made a mistake on page one. Oh, my goodness. Um, but I, but I, feel, I feel that if you can communicate that well, it only increases the trust and legitimacy because you're showing here's the processes that I've been through to trust the data or to trust my interpretation of it. It's sort of a, a, long, a long way to describe it, but I know that people have a fear of putting themselves in there. Um, and I think, it, I think it's connected with this sort of trust mm. thing. Uh, that's my, my hunch. Mm. Um, so I hope that helps a couple of people think about, okay, but science isn't just facts. It is, yeah. a, it is a process. And that became particularly stark, I think, during the pandemic and yeah. during... Um, all the, the the vaccine things and, you know, from the public's perception, constantly changing or updating advice. And there was a lot of people who struggled because it was like, well, last week they said this and yeah. this week the scientists say this and how can we trust them at all? And the more we can communicate that science is a process and the, the benefit of that process is that we can update our understanding um, and that we're not just entrenched in a previous position when new information is presented, the more we can communicate that effectively, I think the better uh, the better our society will understand um, mm. how to interpret uh, scientific information and, and results and um, see it less of a binary fact-based uh, yeah. pursuit. Beautiful. I love that. Now, you've been so generous with your time and there's so many gems. Some of the things that, that stand out as threads across everything we've spoken about, I love the emphasis on knowing yourself whether that's the kind of organization you want to work with and how you want to divide your time into different activities or whether it's how you're going to present most comfortably. I think that is going to allow you to channel that authenticity when you are communicating with people and and they're going to respond so much to that. And I also love the focus you've talked about in terms of finding your tribe and having a team around it. You don't have to feel alone. I know it can be difficult and you can feel like here I am in the lab working on my project and I have to do everything. But Susie, your story is such an amazing example to the contrary of how you can be stronger and more powerful with wonderful people around you helping you. I think that's terrific. Now, one last question before we go. Uh, I know on the Let's Talk SciComm podcast, you mentioned that Australia is you know, a bit behind the eight ball and that's come up again on today's episode. What can people do? We've spent the episode talking about what can an individual researcher or, or research communicator do? What should research organizations be doing to support their people? So 
Uh, there are tools available online, um, both Australian and, and UK ones I can think of, um, that allow you to assess your organisation or your institute um, to actually see sort of how embedded communication, engagement and Im- impact especially are within that organisation. So you can do a sort of self-assessment tool um, to see whether you're at a point of sort of, you know, like you're just starting out or, you know, emerging, sort of growing or, or whether it's really embedded in the culture. Um, so I'd say that's a really great place for organisations to start is to, and if you just look up one of you know, Google it, uh, one of them is called the Edge Tool from the, okay. um, that's the UK one. Uh, and off the top of my head, I can't remember the Australian one, but there's a few of them. And probably the people in your organisation working in the impact and engagement space who are often the people in the library will be able to tell you that right. if you're a academic institution, that is. Um, so that's one thing that organisations can do. Um, now, the other thing is I've mentioned a number of times how important it was to have financial support yeah. for these activities. Um, so, in other countries there are, and I don't think this exists now, but I would love for it to exist here, so I'll just wish for it and say it. Um, there are fellowships which allow people to combine uh, research and engagement with um, activities uh, to actually encourage, I, I never had one of those, but to encourage people who are you know, who, who hold this dual thing I would love to see more of those mm. exist in Australia. I would love to see specific funding streams exist um, for engagement. Um, I think our organisations should be actually pressuring our funding bodies to create funding streams for high quality public engagement. I hear a lot of narrative around, you know, oh, research is in the ivory towers and, you know, well, we want research to be valuable to people. Well, we have a, we have a duty to mm. ensure that a, our research has value where it has that capacity in society, um, and also that the you know the people who are literally funding us, the taxpayers, actually are able to access our information. And just making a paper open source is maybe not sufficient. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and in order to do that well, it takes money. Like, sorry to put money in and uh, science in the same sentence, but it's really important. Um, and it astounds me that this connection sort of hasn't been made and that there aren't more funding schemes. There's a couple of tiny ones like for the National Science Week, for example. But what I want to see is more seed funds for, you know, little ground up uh, mm. activities that, that work and the ability to grow those things where they're successful and evaluated. Evaluation is the hill I'll die on. That's a whole other conversation. Um <laughs> and where they're working well and being able to expand those into to larger programs. At the moment, your best chance of getting funding for things like that are through philanthropic organisations, mm. benefactors, things like that. We're very, very lucky here at the University of Melbourne that we have support for things like that. So those are the key bits of advice that I would give to organisations to grow a culture of embedded engagement and communication within their organisation. Great advice. All right, Susie, thank you so much for your generosity. This has been an absolute joy. I'd uh, love to have you back uh, to dig deeper. We, d- we didn't even get to talk about curiosity-driven research. I know, whole other episode. Whole other episode. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for helping me think through uh, the way that I think. I don't get time to sit and think about, about this, so it's been really fun. You've been listening to Amplifying Research. I'm your host, Chris Parlo. Thanks again to Associate Professor Susie Shee for being such an amazing guest and sharing all those incredible tips and stories and lessons. You can find out more about her and her work at susieshee.com. Make sure you pick up a copy of her book, The Matter of Everything. 
And if you haven't already seen her TED Talk and other lectures on YouTube, you can find links to those in the show notes. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on LinkedIn or via my website, amplifyingresearch.com. I'd like to acknowledge that I produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respect to their elders, past and present. Big thank you to Maya Tarrell and Michelle Joy for being consulting producers on this show. Our theme song is by La Bucle, and our interstitial music is by Blue Steel, both courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Stay tuned for another episode next week. For the first 12 episodes, I'm going to be releasing the show weekly and then switching to every other week as I have quite a few other exciting things I'm going to be developing alongside this show. Thanks for listening, friends, and as always, stay curious.